Hello and welcome back to another episode of Who Knows. My name is Chris and I will be your personal reader for this uh, little episode here. Um, thanks for sticking around. I appreciate everybody who's listening. Um, I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am reading it, enjoying reading it. So We are on chapter 11, part 3, chapter 11. Of Ethics for the New Millennium by the Dalai Lama. And um, let's see what this gets into. Thanks for coming. Appreciate you guys again. Um, and we'll just get right into it. So part three, Ethics and Society. Chapter 11, Universal Responsibility. I believe that our every act has a universal dimension. Because of this, ethical discipline, wholesome conduct, and careful discernment are crucial ingredients for a meaningful, happy life. But let us now consider this proposition in relation to the wider community. In the past, families and small communities could exist more or less independently of one another. If they took into account their neighbor's well-being, so much the better. Yet they could survive quite well without this kind of perspective. Such is no longer the case. Today's reality is so complex, and on the material level at least, so clearly interconnected that a different outlook is needed. Modern economics is a case in point. A stock market crash on one side of the globe can have a direct effect on the economies of countries on the other. Similarly, our technological achievements are now such that our activities have an unambiguous effect on the natural environment. And the very size of our population means that we cannot any longer afford to ignore others' interests. Indeed, we find that these are often so intertwined that serving our own interests benefits others, and even though this may not be our explicit intention. For example, when two families share a single water source, ensuring that it is not polluted benefits both. In view of this, I am convinced that it is essential that we cultivate a sense of what I call universal responsibility. This may not be an exact translation of the Tibetan term I have in mind, chi sem, which means literally universal, consciousness. Although the notion of responsibility is implied rather than explicit in the Tibetan, it is definitely there. When I say that on the basis of concern for others' well-being, we can and should develop a sense of universal responsibility, I do not, however, mean to suggest that each individual has a direct responsibility for the existence of, for example, wars and famines in different parts of the world. It is true that in Buddhist practice, we constantly remind ourselves of our duty to serve all sentient beings in every universe. Similarly, the theist recognizes that devotion to God entails devotion to the welfare of all his creatures. But clearly, certain things, such as the poverty of a single village 10,000 miles away, are completely beyond the scope of the individual. What is entailed, therefore, is not an admission of guilt, but again, a reorientation of our heart and mind away from self and towards others. To develop a sense of universal responsibility, of the universal dimension of our every act, and of the equal right of all others to happiness and not to suffer, is to develop an attitude of mind whereby when we see an opportunity to benefit others, we will take it in preference to merely looking after our own narrow interests. But though, of course, we care about what is beyond our scope, we accept it as part of nature and concern ourselves with doing what we can. 
An important benefit of developing such a sense of universal responsibility is that it helps us become sensitive to all others, not just those closest to us. We come to see the need to care especially for those members of the human family who suffer more, most. We recognize, we recognize the need to avoid causing divisiveness among our fellow human beings. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we become aware of the overwhelming importance of contentment. When we neglect others' well-being and ignore the universal dimension of our actions, it is inevitable that we will come to see our interests as separate from theirs. We will overlook the fundamental oneness of the human family. Of course, it is easy to point to numerous factors which work against this notion of unity. These include differences of religious faith, of language, customs, culture, and so on. But when we put too much emphasis on superficial differences and on account of them make even small, rigid discriminations, we cannot avoid bringing about additional suffering both for ourselves and others. This makes no sense. We humans already have enough problems. We all face death, old age, and sickness, not to mention the inevitability of meeting with disappointment. These we simply cannot avoid. Is this not enough? What is the point of creating still more unnecessary problems simply on the basis of different ways of thinking or different skin color? Judging these realities, we see that both ethics and necessity call for the same response. In order to overcome our tendency to ignore others' needs and rights, we must continually remind ourselves of what is obvious, th that basically we are all the same. I come from Tibet. Most of the readers of this book will not be Tibetans. If I were to meet each reader individually and look them over, I would see that the majority do indeed have characteristics superficially different from mine. If I were then to concentrate on these differences, I could certainly amplify them and make them into something important. But the result would be that we grew more distant rather than closer. If, on the other hand, I were to look on each one as of my own kind, as a human being like myself, with one nose, two eyes, and so forth, ignoring differences of shape and color, then automatically that sense of distance would fade. I would see that we have the same human flesh, and that, moreover, just as I want to be happy and to avoid suffering, so do they. On the basis of this recognition, I will quite naturally feel well disposed towards them, and concern for their well-being will arise almost by itself. Yet it seems to me that while most people are willing to accept the need for unity within their own group, and within this, the need to consider others' welfare, the tendency is to neglect the rest of humanity. In doing so, we ignore not only interdependent nature of reality, but the reality of our situation. If it were possible for one group or one race or one nation to gain complete satisfaction and fulfillment by remaining totally independent and self-sufficient within the confines of their own society, then perhaps it could be argued that discrimination against outsiders is justifiable. But this is not the case. In fact, the modern world is such that the interests of a particular community can no longer be considered to lie within the confines of its own boundaries. Cultivating contentment is therefore crucial to maintaining peaceful coexistence. Discontentment breeds acquisitiveness, acquisitiveness, which can never be satisfied. It is true that if we the individual seeks, if what we the individual seeks is by nature infinite, such as the quality of tolerance, the question of contentment does not arise. The more we enhance our ability to be tolerant, the more tolerant we will become. In respect of spiritual qualities, contentment is neither necessary nor in fact is it desirable. But if we seek to but if what we seek is finite, there is every danger that 
having acquired it, we will still not be satisfied. In the case of the desire for wealth, even if a person were somehow able to take over the economy of an entire country, there is every chance they would begin to think in terms of acquiring that of other countries too. Desire for what is finite can never really be sated. On the other hand, when we develop contentment, we can never be disappointed or disillusioned. Lack of contentment, which really comes down to greed, sows the seed of envy and aggressive competitiveness, and leads to a culture of excessive materialism. The negative atmosphere this creates becomes the context for all kinds of social ills, which brings suffering to all members of that community. If it were the case that greed and envy had no side effects, arguably this would be a matter for that community alone. But again, such is not the case. In particular, lack of contentment is a source of damage to our natural environment, and thereby of harm to others. Which others? In particular, the poor and the weak. Within their own community, though the rich may be able to move to avoid, for example, high levels of pollution, the poor have no choice. Similarly, the people of the poorer nations, which do not have the resources to cope, also suffer both from the richer nation's excess and from the pollution of their own cruder technology. The coming generations, too, will suffer, and eventually, we ourselves will suffer. How? How, you may ask? We have to live in the world we are helping to create. If we choose not to modify our behavior out of respect for others' equal right to happiness and not to suffer, it will not be long before we begin to notice the negative consequences. Imagine the pollution of an extra 2 billion cars, for example. It would affect us all. So consent, contentment is not merely an ethical manner. If we do not wish to add to our own experience of suffering, it is a matter of necessity. This is one of the reasons why I believe that the culture of perpetual economic growth needs to be questioned. In my view, it fosters discontent, and with, it, and with this comes a great number of problems, both social and environmental. There's also the fact that in devoting ourselves wholeheartedly to material development, we neglect the implications this has for the wider community. Again, this is less of a matter of the gap between first and third world, north and south, between developed and underdeveloped, between rich and poor, being immoral and wrong. It is both of these. But in some ways, more significant is the fact that such inequality is itself the source of trouble for everyone. If it were the case that, for example, Europe was the whole world rather than home to less than 10% of the world's population, the prevailing ideology of endless growth might be justifiable. Yet the world is more than just Europe. In fact, the fact that is that elsewhere, people are starving, and where there are imbalances as profound as these, there are bound to be negative consequences for all. Even if they are not equally direct, the rich also feel the symptoms of poverty in their daily lives. Consider in this context how the sight of surveillance cameras and of iron security bars over our windows actually detracts a little from our sense of serenity. Universal responsibility also leads us to commitment to the principle of honesty. What do I mean by this? We can think of honesty and dishonesty in terms of the relationship between appearance and reality. Sometimes these synchronize, often they do not. But when they do, that is honesty as I understand it. So we are honest when our actions are what they seem to be. When we pretend to be one thing, but in reality we are something else, suspicion develops in others, causing fear. And fear is something we all wish to avoid. 
Conversely, when in our interactions with our neighbors, we are open and sincere in everything we say and think and do, people have no need to fear us. This holds true both for the individual and for communities. Moreover, when we understand the value of honesty in all our undertakings, we recognize that there is no ultimate difference between the needs of the individual and the needs of the whole community. Their numbers vary, but their desire and right not to be deceived remains the same. Thus, when we commit ourselves to honesty, we help reduce the level of misunderstanding, doubt, and fear throughout society. In a small but significant way, we create the conditions for a happy world. The question of justice is also closely connected both with universal responsibility and the question of honesty. Just, justice entails a requirement to act when we become aware of injustice. Indeed, failure to do so may be wrong, although not wrong in the sense that it makes us somehow intrinsically bad. But if our hesitance to speak out comes from a sense of self-centeredness, then there is a problem. If our response to injustice is to ask, what will happen to me if I speak out? Maybe people won't like me. This could well be unethical because we are ignoring the wider implications of our silence. It is also inappropriate and unhelpful when set in the context of all others' equal right to happiness and to avoid suffering. This remains true even, perhaps especially, when, for example, governments or institutions say this is our business or this is an internal affair. Not only can our speaking out under such circumstances be a duty, but more importantly, it could be a service to others. It may, of course, be objected that such honesty is not always possible, that we need to be realistic. Our circumstances may prevent us from always acting in accordance with our responsibilities. Our own families may be harmed if, for example, we speak out when we witness injustice. But while we do have to deal with the day-to-day -day reality of our lives, it is essential to keep a broad perspective. We must evaluate our own needs in relation to the needs of others and consider how our actions and inactions are likely to affect them in the longer term. It is hard to criticize those who fear for their loved ones, but occasionally it will be necessary to take risks in order to benefit the wider community. A sense of responsibility toward all others also means that both as individuals and as a society of individuals, we have a duty to care for each member of our society. This is true irrespective of their physical capacity or, if their or of their capacity for mental reflection. Just like ourselves, such people have a right to happiness and to avoid suffering. We must therefore avoid, at all costs, the urge to shut away those who are grievously afflicted as if they were a burden. The same goes for those who are diseased or marginalized. To push them away would be to heap suffering on suffering. If we ourselves were in the same condition, we would look to others for help. We need, therefore, to ensure that the sick and afflicted person never feels helpless, rejected, or unprotected. Indeed, the affection we show to such people is, in my opinion, the measure of our spiritual health, both at the level of the individual and at that of society. I may sound hopelessly idealistic in all this talk of universal responsibility. Nevertheless, it is an idea I have been expressing publicly ever since my first visit to the West, back in 1973. In those days, many people were skeptical of such notions. Similarly, it was not always easy to interest people in the concept of world peace. I am encouraged to note that today, however, an increasing number are beginning to respond favorably to these ideas. As a result of the many extraordinary events and humanity, events humanity has experienced during the course of the 20th century, we have, I feel, become more mature. In the 50s and 60s, and in some places even more recently, many people felt that ultimately conflict should be resolved through war. 
Today, that thinking holds sway only in the minds of a small minority, and whereas in the early part of the century, many people believed that progress and development within society should be pursued through strict regimentation, the collapse of fascism, followed later by the disappearance of the so-called Iron Curtain, has shown this to be a hopeless enterprise. It is worth noting that it is worth noting the lesson from history which shows that order imposed by force is only ever short-lived. Moreover, the consensus among some Buddhists, too, that science and spirituality are incompatible no longer holds so firmly. Today, as the scientific understanding of the nature of reality deepens, this perception is changing. Because of this, people are beginning to show more interest in what I have called our inner world. By this, I mean the dynamics and functions of consciousness or spirit, our hearts and minds. There has also been a worldwide increase in environmental awareness and a growing recognition that neither individuals nor even whole nations can solve all their problems by themselves, that we need one another. To me, these are all very encouraging developments, which are sure to have far-reaching consequences. I am also encouraged by the fact that regardless of its implementation, there is at least clearer acknowledgement of the need to seek nonviolent resolutions of conflict in a spirit of reconciliation. There is also, as we have noted, noted growing acceptance of the universal universality of human rights and indeed the need to accept diversity in areas of common importance, such as, for example, in religious affairs. This, I believe, to reflect a recognition of the need for a wider perspective in response to the diversity of the human family itself. As a result, despite so much suffering continuing to be inflicted on individuals and people's lives in the name of ideology or religion or progress or development or economics, a new sense of hope is emerging for the downtrodden. Although it would undoubtedly be difficult to bring about genuine peace and harmony, clearly it can be done. The potential is there, and its foundation is a sense of responsibility on the part of each individual toward all others. I wholeheartedly agree with everything he just said there. We need to help each other. We're not, we're not so different, you and I, you know? And I've always believed that. So, thanks for coming. Keep coming back. I appreciate you guys.